liturgical year. We're looking tonight at the history of the formation of the liturgical or church year. Now, let's do a real fast overview. We've been through it many, many times in terms of our actual experience of it. The church year begins with the season of Advent. Then there's Christmas. Epiphany. Lent. Easter. Pentecost. Pins emptying out. Change pins. Pentecost. And then the Sundays after Pentecost, which Pentecost that begins that, which has two names, depending upon the tradition that you're in, but Sundays after. Kingdom Tide, or Common Time. Alright, so we have Advent, which begins the church year. Christmas, which goes from uh, Christmas Eve, December the 24th, through January the 6th. Epiphany, Lent. Easter, Pentecost, Sunday, then the Sundays after Pentecost, which is the longest time of the year, and some churches break it down into Sundays after Pentecost and then Kingdom Tide or Common Time. The colors associated with each, Advent, Purple, and Blue. Christmas is white and gold. Epiphany is green. Lent is purple. Easter is white or gold. Pentecost is red. Sundays after Pentecost are alternately red for the first half and then green for the second half or green for the whole thing. And I'll get when I get to this in a minute I'll explain why we do it that way. Now, any questions before I take each season independently? First of all, what do you think, just taking a look at this little calendar, Advent, Christmas, Epiphany, Lent, Easter, Pentecost, and then the Sundays after Pentecost, what developed in the history of the church first? What started first? Huh? That's when the Spirit came down. Now let me rephrase the question. Which of these was recognized first in the life and worship of the church? Well, differently phrased. 
which was recognized and and took part or had an element of it in the worship life of the church? Lent. Lent? Ooh, you are on fire. Lent, yes. This is actually a trick question. Because in Lent you have the Sundays of Lent and then you have Holy Week. Which is the week between Palm Sunday after Palm Sunday and before Easter. Now, Holy Week and particularly Monday Thursday and Good Friday. The commemoration of the Lord's Supper and the crucifixion combined with Easter was what was first recognized in the worship life of the church. You even see it in the New Testament itself. The development of a commemoration of the Lord's Supper on a weekly basis in worship together, which is a commemoration of His death and resurrection with every Lord's Day, every Sunday, Lord's Day, being the, the weekly commemoration of Easter. But once a year, weekly commemoration of His resurrection. But once a year, they actually remembered the exact date. Why is it called Easter? Why is it called Easter? I can't remember the name of the pagan goddess, but there was a... Ishtar? Ishtar, yes. This is a characteristic of much of Christian practice. There was a pagan goddess named Ishtar whose worship in the death of her counterfeit Christ son Tammuz was a religious practice that was underway in the spring at the time of Passover and the remembrance of the resurrection of Jesus. And the church in the second century was having trouble getting these newly minted Christians from not going to Ishtar feasts. They couldn't stop them going to Ishtar feasts, commemorating the death and resurrection of her son Tammuz, who was a counterfeit Christ in the Babylonian mystery religions. Satan was trying to t divert attention from Jesus by putting out this false pagan god. Well, the Ishtar feasts were very popular, and so the church in the second century essentially adopted and shifted just slightly of the pronunciation in the Latin to generate the concept or term Easter. And particularly in Europe, this was how the reference was made to Resurrection Day. Uh, 
Easter became the term that was used to sort of draw those newly minted Christians who had been pagans into worship and celebration times at the church in the community of faith. That's where the eggs come from? The eggs come from the Babylonian mystery religion, the concept of fertility, which is part of Ishtar worship, and rabbits come from there as well. The egg is not a symbol of the rock that was rolled away from the door. That's a bunch of nonsense. The <laughs> egg and the rabbit all symbolize this most entirely pagan portions of Ishtar worship that were drafted into Christianity in its symbolisms. Anyway, Ishtar. Wor Ishtar worship, they simply adopted the name for the annual remembrance and celebration of the resurrection. So, Holy Week, which is Palm, goes from Palm Sunday until Good Friday, and actually Holy Saturday, made up of the days of the week, and Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday being the penultimate moment of it, and then Easter Sunday morning with the worship at uh, just before sunrise to commemorate when the ladies came to the tomb and found it empty just before the sun came up. That, that's when they found it empty. That's not when he was raised, by the way. He was raised at some point after sundown Saturday night. We'll talk about that at some other time. We'll probably talk about this issue of Holy Week in connection with what Scripture says about the death and resurrection of Jesus and the three days in the tomb. We'll talk about that this coming Holy Week. <laughs> but um, well, right now, this, it, it suffices to say that this was where it started. This is how the liturgical year began was an annual remembrance and celebration of the death and resurrection. What they did every single week, week in and week out without fail, what they did every single week in remembering his death and resurrection through coming together to worship, to hear the gospel read and proclaimed, to receive Holy Communion, and then to celebrate his resurrection on Resurrection Day. Some, some languages even call it Resurrection Day. Um, the Russian language, the word, the, the word for Sunday, even in the Soviet Union this was true. They tried to replace the word. It didn't work back in the 1920s. The word for Sunday in Russian is Voskresenya, Resurrection Day. Voskresenya, Voskres, to raise, to raise or to go up. Voskresenya, Resurrection Day. And it's an annual, I mean a weekly Easter, a weekly remembrance of his resurrection. Every Sunday is Easter. But once a year, the church very early on commemorated, remembered, and celebrated first his death and his resurrection. And that started the liturgical year. Then... We shifted, there, there developed the season of Lent as a whole group attached to that. The week of Holy Week wasn't enough of preparation time to remember his death and resurrection, to get ready every year to remember his death and resurrection. So they started adding on weeks prior to Easter 
to get ready. It started longer and it got shortened up quite a bit as the rest of the liturgical year evolved. But in the second century and into the beginning of the third, Lent had evolved as a season of the church year. Epiphany, the importance of the um, proclamation of the wise guys, of Jesus' birth, the magi, the the uh, astrologers from the east, that occurs right in here on Epiphany. doesn't occur with Christmas. occurs with Epiphany. Then you have the question of Pentecost, which was celebrated very early on as the birth of the church, the come descending of the Holy Spirit. That evolved at about the same time as the Lent expansion of the Easter celebration. Pentecost started being recognized. In the very beginning of the 4th century, in the 300s AD, they were having trouble in the church just prior to the Christianization of the Roman Empire, and then when it, when it occurred in the 300s, and Christianity became a legal religion, it came up head-to-head in official religious practice in the Roman Empire, head-to-head with their greatest feast. The greatest feast of the church year, I mean of the pagan world, the pagan year in Rome. It came up head-to-head with that greatest feast of the pagan world, and that is the winter solstice, which marks the darkest point of the year with the, in the northern hemisphere with the longest night the winter solstice, which occurs, depending upon how you calendar it, on December the 22nd through December the 27th, and it wobbles around. Usually, most people just cut the difference and say December the 24th, which in pagan worship practices was the celebration of the birthday of Saturn. And it was called Saturnalia. And I want to tell you, the celebration of that day was such a joyous time in the Roman world that after, even centuries after the church's founding and the growing of Christianity, and even after the Christianity was made the religion of the empire, in the mid-300s A.D. by Constantine, the emperor. And and Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Still, Christians, including the emperor, would celebrate Saturnalia. The church couldn't stop the party. It was too popular. And so they thought to themselves, well, we have resurrection celebration and time to get ready for it. We have a remembrance of the coming of the Holy Spirit and the birthday of the church then. We have a remembrance of the proclamation of the Magi. What are we lacking in Jesus' life that we have in Scripture, in Matthew and in Luke, that's not in our church year? His birthday. His birthday. Exactly. Well, when is his birthday? I don't know. And honestly, they didn't. 
Now, it's a pretty good bet, and we've talked about this. We talked about it last year. I wrote an article about it. It's a pretty good estimation based upon what we know from, from Luke's Gospel that Jesus was born in September. About September the 25th. Which means he would have been conceived around December the 25th if you count your days. If he had a normal nine-month gestation, then he would have been conceived right about now. And he would have been born in September. And you can calculate that based upon the service of Zechariah in the temple in Jerusalem when the angel appeared to him and told him that John the Baptist would be born. You tack on six months to then, and you come up to December the 25th. I mean, yeah, December the 25th for Jesus' conception. All right? And Mary's going to be with Elizabeth when John the Baptist at six months leapt in her womb. So you have a method for calculating Jesus' birth based upon the service of Zechariah in the temple. We know he served twice, and we know which service he was in in his service as a priest in the temple when the angel appeared to him. Based on that, if you know your Jewish stuff, and the scholars who do have done this, he was born in September. So, well, we got a problem then, because that isn't anywhere close to Saturnalia. And we got a party going on on December the 25th, and we don't have a birthday for Jesus on the calendar yet. Let's, let's just move his birthday. Since we don't really know. Since we don't really know. And let's claim, let's Christianize Saturnalia. So they did. They took the common date of December the 25th, 24th, depending on your calendar, as the birthday of Jesus on the Gregorian calendar. And they proclaimed that as his birthday, replacing the pagan celebration of Saturn with the birthday proclamation of Jesus. Then to get ready for that birthday, they tacked on a period of penance, reconciliation, preparation. And in the development of that, and you can read it in the sermons of some of the preachers of the era in the late uh, 300s AD, to get ready for his first coming, celebrating his birth in his first coming, they said, another element of the church here that is missing in our, in our readings and in our preaching, and we're just hitting it hit and miss at this point, usually in connection with his resurrection, is his second coming. Well, his second coming is in some ways like his first and in other ways very different. It's as sure as his first coming, yet it is the exact bipolar opposite in terms of majesty. His first coming was humble. His second coming is majestic and unmistakable. You cannot miss it. His first coming was easy to miss unless you were paying attention. So, they married the two elements together in Advent. And by the 5th century, this had been done. So that the first section of Advent was to remember his second coming, to get ready for his second coming, 
And then the second half, as you get closer to Christmas, was to remember and get ready to celebrate his birthday. And we talked about that this morning with the Gaudete Sunday being this Sunday, the turning point in the, in the Advent celebration when we go from the forward-looking to his second coming to the backward-looking and celebrating his birth. And the celebration that that brings diminishes the preparation for yourself and increases the preparation for others. Hence the celebration and the rejoicing that the church should feel at the birth of the Savior. The same is true if you wanted to celebrate his incarnation in December. And in many ways, if you look at our readings and if you look at the gospel and how it's devised, how it's written brilliantly, both in Matthew and in Luke, almost more attention is given to the proclamation that she would conceive. And it is her conception, which is the beginning of the whole birth story, as is true with the birth of any baby. That baby can't be born until the baby is conceived. And that conception is the exact moment where God breaks into time and becomes incarnate in the virgin's womb. All right? So, we, and this is me, we as Christians commemorate the incarnation in its entire package, conception and birth, here. Despite the fact that he was probably born in September and conceived in December. We celebrate the whole thing here because we couldn't stop the party that the Romans were having in Saturnalia. All right? Elements of the Saturnalia worship got drafted in. The tree is one big one. Uh, giving of lots of presents is another one. Yes, the Magi gave gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. But they gave them to Jesus. And to Jesus' mother, Mary. And by that logic, people ought to be giving their gifts to the church. <laughs> to the church, not to each other. The giving of gifts to each other came from the pagan worship practice of Saturnalia when they did that. That's another aspect. There's nothing wrong with gift giving. I think it's wonderful. Nothing wrong with it at all in celebration of the birth of Jesus so long as we understand what we are doing and why. Other elements, one of the most important elements and the big one I want to look at tonight before we close is the history of the Advent wreath. This is one of those pagan things that got drafted into the church and has been totally Christianized now. First of all, Advent used to be longer than four Sundays. It used to be six Sundays. Advent started earlier. The church year ended earlier than it does now. And Advent lasted six Sundays before it lasted four. The Advent wreath is part of our long-standing Christian tradition. I'm reading from a, uh, something I got off the Internet um, uh, oh, it's from catholiceducation.org. The Advent wreath is a part of our long-standing Christian tradition. However, the actual origins are uncertain. 
There is evidence of pre-Christian Germanic peoples using wreaths with lit candles during the cold and dark December days as a sign of hope in the future warm extended sunlight days of spring. In Scandinavia during winter, lighted candles were placed around a wheel and prayers were offered, offered to the God of light to turn the wheel of the earth back toward the sun to lengthen the days and restore warmth. So, obviously, the Advent wreath comes from northern European German traditions in the worship of the Germanic gods in, in Norway and in Germany. Odin and the gods of Asgard and other groups, the Norse gods. Huh? It works. Every works. We have spring every year. The light days get longer. By the Middle Ages, the Middle Ages now, we're talking after a thousand years of Christianity, when Christianity became really strong in Northern Europe, by the Middle Ages, the Christians had adapted this tradition and used Advent wreaths as part of their spiritual preparation for Christmas. After all, Christ is the light that came into the world to dispel the darkness of sin and to radiate the truth and love of God. You'll find that in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. By the 1600s, both Roman Catholics and Lutherans had more formal practices surrounding the Advent wreath than almost any other aspect of the Advent worship traditions. The symbolism of the Advent wreath is beautiful. The wreath is made of varying evergreens, supposed to be, signifying continuous life. Even these evergreens have traditional meaning which can be adapted to our faith. The laurel signifies victory over persecution and suffering, pine, holly, and hue, immortality, and cedar, strength, and healing. Holly also has a special Christian symbolism. The prickly leaves remind us of the crown of thorns, and one English legend tells of how the cross was made of holly. The circle of the wreath, which has no beginning or end, symbolizes the eternity of God, the immortality of the soul, and the everlasting life found in Christ. Any pine cones, nuts, or seed pods used to decorate the wreath also symbolize life and resurrection. Altogether, the wreath of evergreens depicts the immortality of our soul and the new everlasting life promised to us through Christ, the eternal word of the Father, who entered our world becoming true man and who was victorious over sin and death through his own passion, death, and resurrection. This is all an absolutely brilliant example of taking pagan practices and converting them to symbolically for Christian purposes. To be simple and straightforward, the idea of having a wreath to light candles on to symbolize the progression through a season is a pagan practice that was adopted from German pagans worshiping other gods for a different reason and the Christians took it and adapted it, adopted it, converted it for the worship life of the church and gave it these symbols. We did the same thing for the Christmas tree. The Christmas tree is a pagan symbol that we adapted for Christian purposes. Does that mean we should 
throw out the Advent wreath and throw out the holly and throw out the Christmas tree. No. Have fun. Have a party. Celebrate. Ex express your faith in every symbol that you can adapt appropriately and without ruining the faith. Adapt to your faith to communicate the message because symbols always work well. But be honest and truthful as to what is real and what is not. Joseph and Mary did not have an Advent wreath that they lit the last four Sundays of her gestation. The shepherds were not out in their fields shivering with their flocks by night. The wise guys did not show up at the manger scene. We have conglomerated all those things together and have depicted the birth of Jesus in the midst of winter because of traditions. And that can become a problem when your kids go off to school and they encounter professors who will tell them that their traditions are made up or adapted from pagan worship and therefore you shouldn't believe in Jesus because you've been doing this. Well, nonsense. There's a reason why we adopted these things. So they were good. There's nothing wrong with a party. There's nothing wrong with celebrating the birth of your God and Savior Jesus. And... What does it matter that we do it in December? I don't think it matters at all. You know, but it doesn't hurt to know that using Scripture, you can determine with a high degree of accuracy, I believe, the birth date of Jesus. So within, you know, two or three days. And I think that's important to know. Well, it's, it's you know, it's appropriate for, you know, for those of us who believe that life begins at conception. Yes, it does. That December the 24th, 25th, 26th, right in here, would have been when Mary conceived. And thus the beginning of Jesus' life. Exactly. That's what I would say. Nevertheless, uh, the church year evolved over a long period of time. It's still evolving today. For example, the adaption of blue for the second half of Advent, or for all of Advent, if you prefer, um, to differentiate it from the penitential characteristics of Lent, has been something that's been occurring over the last 20 or so years. The, the, the terminologies used in Pentecost. The Roman Catholic Church with Vatican II said that after Pentecost Sunday, all Sundays following are to be green Sundays and be called common time. Well, most Protestants don't particularly like that idea. So while we wear, most Protestant churches will still wear green, we'll still call them the Sundays after Pentecost. Why, I don't know. Methodists had a practice for quite a while of wearing red and having their pulpits and all dressed in red pyramids up until the third Sunday of August. And after the third Sunday of August, they would then switch to green. And if you look in the 1964 Book of Worship, you will see the directions for dressing your pulpit and altar and wearing stoles of red through the third Sunday of August, and then from then on, fourth Sunday on, you wear green. And for the first part of that time, it is the season of Sundays after Pentecost, followed by where the in which you have messages from the lectionary about the Holy Spirit, about the life of the 
church, empowered by the Holy Spirit. We have messages about sanctification as the product of God's grace coming through the Holy Spirit, followed by, you see a change in the lectionary readings with the fourth Sunday of, of Pentecost. You see a change in the fourth, uh, fourth Sunday of Pentecost. Fourth Sunday of August, beginning with the fourth Sunday of August, you see a change in the lectionary readings, a change in which they start to be more about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom of God is here in the church today as a foretaste of the kingdom that God will establish in its perfection and completion with the return of Christ. But in the church we have the kingdom already present and that's another message of the Holy Spirit. That's another message of Pentecost. But it's distinctly different from the earlier readings where that is being established in us. Then the Methodist Church, along with a few others, started calling the second half of Pentecost Kingdom Tide, or the season of the kingdom. And that never really caught on really strong. The terminology never did. And most Methodist churches just continued calling it the Sundays after Pentecost, although they would either wear green all the way through or change like I prefer to do. Now, so Peggy asked me, why are we keeping red even though our calendars say it should be green? And my personal opinion is, and I'll, I'll just give you my actual reason, I like red. <laughs> there's no deep theological reason why I prefer. I can give you one. But there's really and truly, I want more Sundays I can wear red on than one in the church year, Pentecost. I like to be able to wear red several months. Red looks better on me. <laughs> so we, that's one reason. That's my selfish reason. I can give you a good theological reason. Up through the third Sunday of August, the readings are heavily on the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's action in the life of the church. Sanctification. Hence, red for the Holy Spirit. Kingdom Tide's messages deal more with the life of the church in its proclamation to the world. And one of the colors for life is green. Hence, green becomes appropriate at that point. So while everything is going brown outside here in Texas, we start wearing green. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And we're red in the middle of, at the beginning in the middle of summer to symbolize our budget. So... <laughs> So uh, we can make all those types of arguments if you'd like. But the uh, simple fact is, is that this part of the liturgical year is in flux. The Pentecost Sunday and then the Sundays after Pentecost are in change. No one really agrees with what we should do. In the Roman Catholic Church, they sort of settled it at Vatican II by saying, those are common time Sundays and you're to wear green. And... On holy days, saints' days, you wear red. But on every other Sunday, you wear green. They settled it for them. Some churches follow them. The United Methodist Church follows in its calendar. It'll say you wear green or you can wear red up until that day of August. And lots of Methodists continue to wear red. Some of them wear red all the way through the Sundays after Pentecost. All the way. They don't even stop in August. Uh, Tom, when he pastored over at Pleasant Mound before he went to St. Luke's, Tom uh, did not change to green. He wore green for the few Sundays in Epiphany. And that was it. 
because he hates green. He likes red. <laughs> and if you want to, you know, if you want to be blunt about it, that's the reason why he does it. But he makes other arguments too. He says it's confusing. Well, I don't think it's confusing because I use the lectionary. Because he he wasn't much of a lectionary preacher. I am. And if you follow the lectionary readings every year for three years, and you follow the process through, you can see why we change. You pay attention to the readings in August. You'll see a definite shift from messages that are more about the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's life in the individual to messages about the church's life as a whole in taking the gospel to the world. So you have a shift in the character of the readings. The liturgical calendar is mirrored and in fact given structure by the, by the scripture readings for all three years of the lectionary, years A, B, and C. Begins with Advent every single year. And the readings in Advent then go all the way through the church year. And you do it in three-year cycles. So we're now in another year of, of the liturgical year and with a new set of lectionary readings. However, today I cheated. I pulled from last year's third Sunday of Advent readings because I didn't like this year's. None of them spoke to me. And so one of those rare occasions where I stuck with the lectionary, but I went with last year's lectionary reading from Romans instead of this year's lectionary reading, which didn't speak to me at all in any of the gospel, both gospel or the epistle reading. I liked the Isaiah reading, but I wanted to focus on the Romans reading once I read it and realized what I was going to be preaching on today. Uh, particularly when I read it, I knew exactly how I was going to for form it. But um, this calendar gives us a cycle for a Christian life that kind of keeps going, doesn't stop. It begins with Advent and runs through all the way through the end of Common Time, Kingdom Tide, the Sundays after Pentecost, whatever you want to call it. I suspect that eventually we Protestants will figure out what we're going to call it and settle on it. We might eventually settle with what the Catholics have, have said, but we'll make up our mind eventually. Um, and there are still things evolving, like like blue in Advent instead of instead of purple for the whole thing. And this year we went the first half purple and the second half blue because I wanted to teach something about the character of the two halves of the season. And the best way to do that is to shift the colors at the midpoint. Any questions? Yes. Go back for the gifts. Yes. A different one I had to say in that uh, when the wise man got there, the gifts, you know, mm -hmm. he was two years old when they got there. Up to two years old. Okay. Uh, the wise man visited Jesus in a. If you read, if you read the scriptures, you'll see that the magi arrived when Mary and Joseph are living in Bethlehem in a house, not in a manger. They were in the manger. They were in the stall behind the Holiday Inn <laughs> because they couldn't get a room. They didn't have a place to stay when they got there. The city was filled because people were going to Bethlehem for taxation purposes. And so they, they were... They didn't have a place to stay, so they stayed in the stable. After all that was over with, they didn't travel, and so they 
got a place to stay there. They either either Joseph hung out his carpentry shingle and went to work, made some money and got him a house, or they moved in to an inn and stayed for a while, or they moved in with some of his family and stayed with them. But however you figure it, it was sometime after the birth of Jesus. Now, it could have been up to two years after the birth of Jesus. It can't have been beyond that. I tend to think that it was within a year. Did the star stay in the sky all that time? What was the star? What was the star at Bethlehem? Jesus. Well, think about it. What, what was the star of Bethlehem? There's been a lot of debate on this puppy. Some scholars have said it was a, 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 no, a supernova that shone real bright. Well, there was no supernova at that time when Jesus was born or even any one of the years that Jesus could have been born in. It's strange. We can probably say with great certainty the day of Jesus' birth or certainly the week. But the year is up for grabs. It's either 2 or 3 or 4 B.C. and it depends on who you ask. But any one of those years there was no supernova in the sky to have been the star of David. Some said it was a comet. The star of David was a comet. What was it? We don't know. There was an interesting conjunction of Jupiter and Saturn and Venus in the sky. And if you lived in Iraq or Iran, in Persia, that would have been over where Bethlehem existed. If you looked west and were coming from the east and you were going towards that conjunction of stars to make a bright spot in the sky, you would be heading right for Bethlehem depending if you left out of, of uh, Babylon in Iraq. That's the direction you'd be going. And that's where the Magi came from. They came from the east. And they came from Persia. And if they came and that was it, that, that's a very good candidate, which would have been 2 B.C. I think God just put it there for well, the occasion. Well, but then who noticed it? That's what I'm saying. What? Nobody noticed it but the wise men? If it was something unconnected with what we have in history, all the records of astronomical sightings in history, that only the, shep only the shepherds and only the wise guys saw it. That's problematic as a piece of history. Historically speaking, and as an historian, we have to say whatever the wise guys saw was visible to other people. Not to say that the timing of that was not. Oh, I'm not. Who who was not divinely timed? If it was the conjunction of Jupiter, Saturn, and Venus, that tells me that when God set the universe into motion and established our solar system, He set it up in such a way that those three planets would converge to make a single point over Bethlehem at the time that Jesus would be born. God planned it that way. If God simply put a star in the sky over Bethlehem and that star appeared and then disappeared out of nowhere, other people would have seen it. And it would have been written about in history. 
there appeared a great light over Bethlehem that shone upon the city and was there for X number of days and then was gone. It would have been written about. And people and scholars today would look at that historical writing and say, it sounds like a supernova. Because that's what it sounds like. That's what it does sound like. Something that was invisible before, when that star goes nova, it suddenly becomes visible to our eyes because it was dim before, for, too dim for us to see. It becomes, those supernova gets really bright and then dims again. There's nothing that ever occurred that is ever written about that way in history over Bethlehem within a century of the birth of Jesus. So that tells you that it's something else. There's a comet candidate in 06, in, in, yeah, 06 BC. <laughs> There's a comet candidate in 6 BC. There is a conjunction in 3 and 2. And there is a, um, a, con a confluence of um, the moon and a planet in 1. So it depends upon who you ask. 4, 3, 2, and 1. And the most skeptical of scholars say it was entirely invented. Didn't happen. It was invented for the purpose of telling the story. Could someone to say a virgin? Oh yeah, they don't believe the virgin birth either. I look at it historically as an historian and I say, what historically was it? And the candidates for what we know was in the sky at the time what was observed by the observers throughout the entire world, but especially in Persia, where the Magi came from, the most important thing was the convergence of planets. And how long did that last, do we know? A convergence would have lasted for a series of days as any convergence of planets occur. And a similar convergence occurred the preceding year. If it occurred, if, well, if Jesus was born in two, a similar convergence occurred, not quite as close, occurred in three. So you can, you know, it's, I think it's two, two BC, but that's just me. Um, there's a way for calculating Herod the Great's death that says that he died in three. Well, it's using a wrong stellar method for calculating his death. There's a better way to do it, which means that he died in 1 AD, which means Herod the Great was alive uh, in 2 BC when I think Jesus was born. But there's a whole complicated method, and I spent a long time several years ago, and then a long time this last year, a year ago, looking at the question of when was Jesus born. And before this year, I was, I knew he wasn't born in December, but I was saying, Oh, he probably was born in September. I'm more convinced that he was born in September now than ever before. The issue of the year has been up in the air significantly. And the more I've read on it, the more I've come to the conclusion that he really had to have been born in either three or two, probably two. And that the star of Bethlehem, as observed by other people, would have been that convergence of those three planets which would have been visible by guys in the east and they would have come to find what it meant. And that's what we have in scripture telling us that they, they saw a star visible in the east and they, they came to, to Jerusalem to find out what it was. And Herod the Great 
asked, and they said, well, the Messiah, the new king, will come from out of Bethlehem. So that's where they went. So it's it's a interesting question as to how you figure that. And as as for you know, was it something that just God put up there? Well, if God just simply put something up there unexpectedly, why isn't there a record of it? Somebody would have noticed it. So, it's an interesting question. It really is. It really is. But, um, any, any other questions? Did you just explain the colors of the candles in the Advent ring? Okay. Purple... Purple is part of the symbol, color symbol for repentance. It's a color symbol that reminds us that we're to get ready for something important. The first half of Advent, that purple tells us we get ready for the return of Jesus. Just as in lit, purple is a symbol of repentance to get ready for his death and resurrection. So also in Advent, purple is a reminder that we're to get ready for his return. From the second half on, the rose candle is celebration. And we do one more purple candle, which reminds us we've still got to get ready for the birth of this baby. And, and then we celebrate with the white candle in the middle for Jesus and his purity. Okay? Now, blue has replaced purple in some church practices. Either half of the season, as we've done it this year, or the whole season to differentiate it from Lent, to try to play down the repentance and penitential character of Advent and raise up the celebration character of Advent. And since Jesus is a baby boy, and blue is the color for baby boys, <laughs> some people have made that connection. That's not exactly the right. Pink is the pink is rose. And the pink candle, the rose candle, is for the third Sunday of Advent, Traditionally, it's Gaudete Sunday, or Rejoice Sunday, which is what it was today. It's what we call it. And rejoicing at the shifting of the Advent season from more getting ready for Jesus' second coming to rejoice and celebrate his birth, his first coming. So it's like making a turn or shift in our orientation from second coming looking forward to to first coming looking back to copyright 2005 by dr gregory s neal all rights reserved Visit us on the web at www.revneal.org. That's www.revneal.org. This program was produced by Dr. Greg Neal.